This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Welcome to this episode in MDT and Cake for the International Falls and Postural Stability Conference run by the BGS recently. I'm Joe Preston, I'm a consultant geriatrician in London. And I'm Ian Wilkinson, I'm a consultant geriatrician in Surrey. And I went to this conference up in Birmingham and Joe wasn't able to come. No. So what we're going to do is talk through some of my notes from the conference, so it's not a rerun of the conference, we're just going to go through some of the the key points, really, that stood out to what me. What you really liked. What yeah. I really liked, yeah. And partly so I can hear what happened at the first yeah. time, actually. Um, um, so there will be links to the BGS website, which has all of the presentations that were done on the day. Um, so we're not going to put too many links to things next to this. No, and we're not recording in a studio, so if there's a uh, clatterbang wallop or something uh, <laughs> going on in the background, then, then... That's fine. That's fine, yeah. So... First of all, I think I should say this is the first time I've been to the Falls and Boston Security Conference. It was excellent. It was really, was it? really, really, really good. A jam-packed day of just really good talks. It's so just a one-day thing as well. It's just a one-day thing, yeah. So the first session, mm-hmm. and there we're going to talk through the first sort of, uh, sort of nuggets from each, each talk in each session. Mm-hmm. The first session was three talks. The first from Celia Gregson, talking about the National Osteoporosis Guidance Group guidelines. Nog. 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 The second was Professor Sarah Lamb from Oxford talking about preventing falls in mm-hmm. dementia and cognitive impairment. And the third was Brendan Stubbs, who is a physiotherapist who works at the Institute of Psychiatry, talking about mental illness and bone health. It's all really interesting talks. Mm. Was it good? It was really good. Yeah, really, really good. Yeah. Actually. So starting with the knob guidance. Yes. So what's new? So what's new is really a change to the... Um, guideline recommendations for the treatment of osteoporosis in older people, mm-hmm. and that is linked into the FRAC score. So the FRAC score is. It's a few questions that you ask about smoking, weight, steroid use, that kind yeah, of thing. The main risk factors, and then the main risk factors, but none, not really ones that are specific for old age. And then um, plus or minus the bone mineral density. Exactly that. And then what you do is it then gives you a percentage risk of major osteoporotic fracture mm-hmm. or. Uh, a hip fracture yeah. and then you can click on to a, a recommendation for treatment which is the knock which is the knock now you used to get that graph comes in three sections there's a red section that requires treatment mm-hmm. there's a yellow section that requires investigation first and then there's a green section that's kind of a, a reassure and, and give general advice yeah. what those sections used to sort of have a kind of like you know 45 degree angle on them mm-hmm. all going up so the the older you got the higher the threshold was for, for treatment yeah and what's happened now is that from the age of 70 the eligibility treatment that the, the interventional threshold has flatlined okay so um essentially it's removed some of the uh, impacts of age as a risk factor mm. and it means that it's for, for older adults you're more likely to just treat rather than yes. investigate yes exactly yeah. Um, I think it's important just to say that FRAX, and, and one of the things Celia talked about, is that FRAX doesn't include a number of other risk factors for osteoporosis and fracture, such as multiple falls, 
uh, people that have high dose steroids, mm. people that have had multiple fractures in the past. Yeah. It's all quite binary. Yes, yeah, so some people do prefer other other ones, but this is quite a this is quite an accessible and easy yeah. usable one. Yeah, some it? of the questions we're talking about using Q fracture, which is another mm. um, tool, and particularly using Q fracture in patients with uh, with uh, Parkinson's disease. Actually, mm-hmm. that's probably a, a closer predictor of risk. She also gave a link to the calcium calculator. Mm. And, I think um, we might have had in one of our... I think we must have, yeah, but well, I'll put it on the website as well that goes yeah. with this. And then she went on to talk about protein supplementation, which um, is really interesting and links into one of the talks that went on in the second session. And I think the key bit was she talked about an article published in Age and Aging in 2013 mm-hmm. that looked at twice-daily protein supplementation following hip fracture, okay. and that as you increased protein and energy intake, the length of stay reduced and the chance of infection reduced. Mm. And was that protein, like protein shakes? or Yeah, that, that was okay. sort of the, the common or garden protein supplemental things that we okay. did in the hospital. Right. Yeah. Um, also that increasing your dietary protein increases your lumbar spine bone mineral density. That's really interesting. Yeah, and, and the mechanism for that they think might be that it increases your calcium absorption from the gut. And therefore you've got more serum calcium and the bones are obviously kind of a just a calcium reserve. So it, it helps that. It's interesting that it's the vertebral rather than anywhere else, though. Yes, yeah. A couple of other highlights from Celia's talk was denosumab, don't forget to check the calcium prior to treatment. Yep. And on stopping treatment, mm. you get a paradoxical increase in fractures. Yeah, I heard about this recently, but mm. there isn't any clear guidance on what to then do. No, no. So you probably need to switch to some form of alternative treatment is what... The guideline group suggests, however, the evidence they're probably on DMAD because they've not been able to have one of yeah, the other treatments. Sure. One mm. last thing about Celia's talk is she was talking about risk assessing for falls in people who've had fractures. Okay. And there's something called the FRAT score, um, which is F-R-A-T, which is a really nice validated tool for assessing falls in the primary care population. Okay. And so it's five questions. Uh, have they fallen in the last 12 months? Have they had a diagnosis of stroke or Parkinson's disease? Are they unsteady or a problem with balance? Uh, do they use their arms and standing up from a chair? Or do they take four or more different medications each day? And if you score more than three, 60% of those patients fell in the next six months okay. versus 14% of the people did not uh, fell if the score was less than three. Wow. So it's quite a nice, simple yeah. uh, assessment thing. And that's published by Nandi in uh, the Journal of Public Health in 2004. So the second talk was Sally Lamb talking about dementia and frailty and she was really talking about her final X study which is a study looking at exercise in older adults with dementia and it was a really really good talk highlighting the fact that you have an increased falls risk if you have impaired cognition and frailty and that's about a factor of two mm-hmm. and that most falls are not a result of a single risk factor. So yeah, most falls are multifactorial. Yeah. So they've done a study looking at exercise in people with mild to moderate dementia. Uh, there were just under 500 people in the study and a really good compliance with a strong exercise regime, three times a week of exercise and doing quite a lot of strength and aerobic exercise. Okay. And what they found over a four-month period, it was really quite yeah. intense, yeah, and exercise bike. And, and I think okay. two of the sessions each week were led by... Uh, an exercise instructor or therapist and then one was um, sort of person-led. Strength increased over the four-month period but cognition interestingly got worse mm. by 1.4 on the Addenbrooke's okay, cognitive so assessment scale. 
So, yeah. Mm. Interesting. She didn't really have an answer as to why that might be. Did they do statistical analysis to see if that was... Was it a big enough group to oh, yeah, take yeah, that? Prob- so it was yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, they were actually looking for two-tailed tests, so they were looking for an increase in cognition, uh, and, they, and they found the decrease. Uh, but it was it was powered for that. Mm. So I think really interesting. One of the points that was made in the questions, I think, was there's a whole thing about we can't just group exercise and say exercise is bad or exercise is good. Actually, are we looking at weight-bearing exercise? Are we looking at strength training, aerobic training? Twitter, What's the yeah. dose that we should be looking? You know, so yeah. so it's kind of like you know, medicine's no good. Well, well, which medicine which one, for what? Yeah. And exercise yeah. is the same. Third talk was. Brendan Stubbs talking about mental illness, particularly schizophrenia mm. and bone health. Okay, that's interesting. Making a, a good point that both the positive and the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, so the positive symptoms being things like delusions mm-hmm. and hallucinations, and then the negative ones being sort of apathy and withdrawal and stuff like that, both affect somebody's rehab. Mm. And it made me think of delirium. Yeah, yeah, that's really similar. The kind of hypoactive, where they're really, really flat, or if they're really high, yeah, and that's a really common thing that we encounter, isn't it? It's mm. People's difficulty to engage because of those things, and that uh, often people with schizophrenia are on medications, mm. and Lots medications of affect their bone health. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Often by the vitamin D metabolism or by mm. raising serum proactin levels, uh, but also that people with schizophrenia have a number of other risk factors for poor bone health. Um, they may have low levels of physical activity. Mm. They often smoke. Yeah. They may have a number of associated medical problems. Mm-hmm. They have a low vitamin D level, partly because they, they may go outside yeah. less, but also their medications, as we said. They're on antipsychotics. Mm-hmm. Um, so lo- lots of risk factors for fractures, and, and really that it's an underthought about group yeah. at the moment. So then I see you had a nice break. I had a nice break, cup of coffee, look at some posters. Yeah, Did they were they doing fruit again this time, or were there actual cookies and snacks? It was coffee and cookies. Ah, yeah, okay, no they've gone back to it. Yeah. yeah. Then the second session. Second session, so I'm looking at the programme now, and that was on nutrition, sarcopenia, and frailty. Yeah, this was good. This was really good. You love this stuff. I did. I like this, yeah. So the first talk was Professor Jürgen Bauer, mm-hmm. who's a professor of geriatric medicine at Heidelberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a really, really nice chat to him, actually, uh, over coffee, which was really nice. So Heidelberg is one of the oldest hospitals in Germany that has geriatric medicine. Okay. They've got quite a big, big department, about 16 geriatricians. Oh, that's awesome. And their model sounds relatively similar, actually, to some of hospitals here. It's, it's, it's um, people may be admitted either as a step up process from the community or a step down from from a, an acute unit. So he was talking about the issue of nutrition, sarcopenia, and falls, mm-hmm. and pointing out that sarcopenia and malnutrition form a bit of a cycle, mm-hmm. and that as you somebody loses weight, they have an increased risk of getting frail, mm-hmm. and in order to start treating anybody you have to start replacing the energy deficit first mm. I think we talked in the frailty episode yeah. about the frailty cycle and, and the importance of energy in yeah. that and you've got a little diagram here I've got a little diagram of I think this was relating to treating the energy deficit and thinking okay. about nutrition so I've got four overlapping circles one of which is vitamin D one of which is protein one of which is energy and one of is polyunsaturated fatty acids okay. and I think the aim was that actually you need to look at all of those things and and not just one also he made a good point that you get a relative anabolic resistance Mm -hmm. as we get older so uh, you make less muscle and that as we age you need more protein to generate more muscle so you need a higher protein intake 
in order for you to be able to generate muscle. Okay, all right. So for the same amount of muscle, you need more input. Yes. Okay. And the, the World Health Organization has a recommendation that people should be eating 0.8 grams per kilo okay. of protein. Yeah. Uh, however, that is a worldwide thing. And actually, the optimal level to generate muscle and bone is something more than one gram okay. per kilogram. And what he was saying is that if someone's got frailty and sarcopenia, then you need to be giving them even more than that, okay. somewhere in the region of 1.2 okay. to 1.4 grams per kilo. Mm. But you just need to balance that against their renal function. Okay. And he made a point that if someone's renal function is poor, then um, you reduce the expectations a little bit. Okay. And that's um, because of clearance of protein? I think so, yeah. And there's an interesting area that's kind of, I think, just starting to be looked at now, and I know there's a, something called the LACE study that's going on at the moment in the UK, but it's adding leucine, mm-hmm. which is a, an essential fatty acid, and that may increase protein synthesis and therefore muscle okay. synthesis. Be interested to know where we get that naturally in the diet. Yeah, yeah. So if anyone could tell us, the dietitian, <laughs> tweet us, that, let that us. That would be good. Yeah, tweet us, and you can get us at MDT underscore podcast, or you can just drop us a line via the website. Yeah. I think that's the headlines from his talk. Next talk was Helen Roberts on frailty and falls. On frailty and falls. Um, An important connection? Question mark. Yeah. So yeah, Helen, it was a, I've written down here, excellent review of frailty. <laughs> um, and I've written tweet about causes, so you have to bear with me for a moment. So she has a really nice Venn diagram with frailty in the middle. Mm, it's quite busy. And then, yeah, and then sort of the interlocking circles are biological, clinical and psychological mm-hmm. um, sort of manifestations and, and effects of frailty. And then an overarching circle around the outside is societal and environmental. Um, I don't think need to go into more detail than that about it other than just to say that they're the sort of elements to think about yeah. and the incidence of frailty obviously incre- well not obviously but increases with increasing age mm-hmm. and up to 50% of community dwelling um, older people may have pre-frailty yeah which um, is a kind of dynamic state and a potentially reversible state on the on the way to potentially becoming frail but intervention particularly with exercise in the Freed study showed that you could uh, people could go backwards along the Yeah, scale. and you made that nice point that, that I think at the moment we don't necessarily know if frailty is modifiable, but the it's not a one-way street. You yeah. can exercise and increase yeah. in nutrition can uh, reduce the progression to frailty. And that there's a really nice graph she showed showing that you get a great heterogeneity of sarcopenia development as we get aged. So some mm-hmm. people get a lot of sarcopenia, other people don't get yeah. much sarcopenia at all. So there's a big variation. Yeah. Gate speed is probably the easiest thing to do if you're only going to do one thing. And she was saying really nicely in her clinic how she's got a couple of bits of tape. Screening. Yeah, a couple of bits of tape on the skirting board. Yeah. Um, just five meters apart. And so once somebody's already walking, you can then um, just measure the the gate speed mm-hmm. for that five meters. And she she talked about some nice um, frailty assessment scales, but we'll we'll leave that for now. Mm. The next next session was platform presentations, so some of the abstracts that people had done, yes. some projects that they had done. So yeah, so there were five key ones, yeah. just a key message from each. First one was looking at the practicality of doing timed up and go in memory clinics. Okay. That was Amanda Buttery from the Health Innovation Network in South London, and essentially falls a, a major cause of admission in people with cognitive impairment and. They showed from a feasibility study that it, measuring the time that we're going to memory clinic is, is feasible and can okay. be done. Second one, it's good to hear. yeah, was uh, was Joe Russell from Sheffield, who's a registrar, looking at uh, intermediate care and hip fractures, 
and looking at the outcomes for patients that go to intermediate care. Mm-hmm. And 70% of patients that they sent to intermediate care following a hip fracture were discharged home. Mm-hmm. I think 17% of them had post-operative delirium. Okay. And that length of their stay? That length of their stay, yeah. Okay. And I think they're going to start looking to see if there's any predictors for discharge destination based okay. on that group that go to intermediate care. And just thinking about using the idea she talked a bit about the idea of the last thousand days of life yeah which i think is a really nice idea um and using perhaps you know a hip fracture or a high bartel index that you may measure when someone comes Mm. in as a predictor about thinking the last thousand about Mm. their last thousand days and um getting down on paper someone's aspirations and goals for for an advanced care plan yeah third was trevor ong from nottingham and trevor was talking about the feasibility of chair-based pedal exercises on acute wards so they it's quite a nice idea yeah it was interesting though but they on average people only spent about five minutes on the exercise bike each day okay. so it wasn't wasn't a huge amount um which is only about 150 revolutions of the bike okay you kind of want one you can put next to the chair so that was it that was exactly oh, okay. it and, this yes. only five yes. minutes. Uh, and there was no change in muscle strength or mobility oh. and adherence to the exercise was low and they wondered about whether or not that was actually rather than the patient's wishes was whether or not they were competing interests for the clinical stuff. Maybe. The fourth one was uh, Mubarak Patel who's from Exeter uh, working with Vicky Goodwin who's a, a research fellow down in Exeter um, and he was looking at wearable technology in older adults mm-hmm. and looking particularly about inertial sensors and how they're often positioned in the lower lumbar spine and that they measure trunk sway. Okay. And in people that fall, they have a greater degree of trunk sway oh. in standing. But also, if you've got a, a wearable sensor on, then you can look at stride length and walking speed, which are also risk factors mm. for falls, um, and the number of steps somebody takes in a turn okay. as a predictor fall. So more sort of saying that you know that there's quite a lot of uh, potential for wearable technology in the future. Yeah. That's then, quite cool. Yeah, that's really quite, quite nice cool. Idea. And then the final talk was uh, talking about the incidence of mortality of fractures and frailty, and that the more frail somebody was, the higher their fracture risk, mm-hmm. and that ladies' fracture risk was higher than men, as we know. And adjusting for frailty and sex, older people had a higher fracture risk as they get older. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that femur, pelvis and shoulder fracture risk was the particularly highest sections. Mm. Which is what we see in practice, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And then there was another break as we all moved rooms and then there was a series of four parallel sessions. Mm-hmm. One was about preventing the next fracture and fall from the National Fracture Liaison Service database, mm-hmm. which is a Royal College of Physicians-based database, uh, which I think is going to start generating data soon very much like the hip fracture database and be really really mm. uh, useful to see the results of that second one was some bloke talking about sepsis and hip fractures <laughs> i heard he was rubbish yeah yeah that was ian so that's me third so do one summarize that yes so sepsis 3.0 is now a thing 3.0. which is the international the third international consensus on sepsis and you know how before sepsis was a systemic inflammatory response syndrome sirs plus mm. an infective source and then severe sepsis was that plus a transient drop in blood pressure or a raise in your lactate that, that responded to treatment. And septic shock was that that didn't. Um, essentially, sepsis has been reclassified. So you have to be very poorly to be sepsis. And sepsis is an abnormal response to infection. 
So those first people that have a systemic inflammatory response, they just have an infection mm. and they're responding completely normally to the fact that they have an infection. Sepsis is now those really sick people whose blood pressure drops, who have a maladaptive organ response to sepsis. Okay. Um, and I think reclassifying things that way, um, it will be helpful for the management yeah. of sepsis. But the point I was making in, in the talk is in the perioperative period, there's a number of things that can mimic that. Yes. Like post-op anemia, post-operative uh, uh, myocardial infarctions, um, bone cement implantation syndrome, all of these things kind of look a bit like sepsis. And the key bit is to ask yourself that first question at the start, do I think this person in front of me has an infection? Mm. Go from there. The third talk was about developing effective fracture fall services. And the last one was about feet, footwear and falls. Um, which oh, was Dawn Skelton. She talked at one of the uh, recent BGSs when she got everyone standing up and walking around on their toes and their heels. Oh, I heard about that, yeah. Yes, which is very good. I wasn't there, but yeah, I heard that was very enlightening. Yeah. And then unfortunately I then had to head off because I was heading, heading back to London, so I didn't get to the last session, but there were talks on falls and care homes from Adam Gordon and preventing falls and Parkinson's disease, which got some good tweets about mm. it um, from Vicky Goodwin. I just said there are links to the all of the presentations on the BGS website that we'll, we'll put a link to so you yeah. can go and have a little look at those. Yes, I think yeah. it was good. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, yeah, really good. I'm going to a, well, it's not a conference, it's a course on um, balance and dizziness. Oh, exciting. Yes. So um, we hopefully we'll do a, a roundup of some of the pithy points from that Yes. Uh, in a few weeks' time. Yes. So the MDT will reconvene as per normal uh, with the next <laughs> episode. As you were. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a hearing aid podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. 